Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. Great show. Today we have Sumit of Mazakali, which is an investment banking platform in the cannabis industry. Uh, first, I ask him why investment banking and not venture capital or private equity. He also gives us his thoughts on Canada and the bubble brewing up there, uh, as well as his thoughts on the future of cannabis in South America, which is quite fascinating. Great episode for anybody looking to raise money soon. And speaking of raising money soon, if you need some help, please let us know. Eric and I, producer Eric and I, have started a business called Balanced Advisor, and we're here to help you with all sorts of different things, operations, accounting, taxes, video marketing, capital preparation, investor landscape, deck, performa. Everybody needs a little help in life. Get your life back. Start sleeping again. Let us know if you need some help. Balancedadvisor.com. All right, guys, let's get back into the show with Sumit of Mazakali. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, Sumit, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Mazakali is a name a lot of people know, but for anybody that doesn't, why don't you just start with what is Mazakali? Yeah, thanks for having me. Mazakali is a cannabis investment banking platform. And uh, Mazakali, by, by definition, is an ancient Sanskrit word. It's one of the 17 richest words in the history of language. It takes eight English words to describe it, and it, those are aspiring to fly higher through peace and liberation. Wow, okay. And to fly higher, explain that. Why those words? Why are those words important to you? A couple different reasons. When I think about the history of cannabis, I think about the base of the Hindu Kush mountains, and I think about how cannabis has evolved with us over the past several thousand years. And when I think about the future of cannabis, I think about a wonderful outcome for humanity at large and a wonderful outcome for the next several thousand years. And when I think about how if you want your tree to grow taller, you want your roots to run deep, and they do with cannabis. And I think it's important to not look at cannabis through the lens of this 82-year period of prohibition, but rather through the lens of the thousands of years of medical assistance that this plant has provided us. And because of those reasons, I felt that it was very important to pay respect to the history and pay respect to where this plant has come from, because it does provide a lot of light as to where it might be going. So you said investment banking platform. Mm -hmm. Take me through why that's the best vehicle instead of venture capital or private equity. Why have you chosen sort of this, this lane? Sure. And we work with several venture capital and private equity firms uh, in order to place capital responsibly into the industry. Uh, when I think about the ways in which we can shepherd capital and the ways in which we can promote those businesses who have the ideals and morals that we believe in and want to support, uh, we think about uh, two, two sort of ways in which we can do this. One is to have direct placements into these companies, and the other is to shepherd institutional capital into the companies as well. And so when I think about how one can effectively shepherd capital in the industry, one can amass assets and work to place them responsibly, or one can guide those assets and do the same. And when we looked at all of... Uh, uh, all of the wonderful funds and wonderful asset managers that are raising money to deploy into this into this space, uh, given our backgrounds and given our banking licenses and our partnership with Growth Capital, which is our broker, and with Hoban Law Group, which is our legal partner, we found that it was 
best to bring a combination of the three firms I just mentioned to the market and to these private equity and venture capital firms in order to be able to provide compliance, regulatory, and legal oversight along with our financial and strategic oversight all under one shared umbrella. Mm-hmm. Got it. So if I'm a micro VC, for example, or maybe a high net worth individual that's interested in cannabis and I find you at a conference, how does that conversation go? How, how does it sort of start? Certainly, there's a large amount of interest in the space and there's a healthy amount of capital looking at the space as well. Where we find a gap to exist, perhaps, is in the knowledge base. And certainly when we meet folks at conferences and when we meet folks that are looking at this industry from an investment standpoint, they do want to get invested, but prior to that, they want to get advised. And prior to that, they want to get educated. So we look at our role as uh, threefold. We do work to educate folks and we publish green papers to that effect. Uh, We also advise folks on effective capital placements. We do a lot of work from a top-down basis on portfolio construction, sector diversification, hedging against what we believe is going to be a continual price decline in the spot price uh, by exposing portfolios into sectors that will benefit from that decline. Uh, We also do a lot of work from a bottoms-up basis where we look at companies and as you very well know, there are over 30,000 businesses in this industry. And given the growth rate of the industry, these businesses are multiplying at a fairly rapid rate. Uh, It is imperative to be able to identify those that will survive the eventual onslaught of consolidation pre-federal legalization and certainly a larger one post. And it is our uh, sort of our mandate, if you will, to go out and find those businesses that will eventually survive and thrive in a fully federal economy. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? How do companies come to you and sort of what's the due diligence process to get them on the platform? Uh, Sure. Uh, Companies are, uh, well, there's no shortage of companies looking for capital in this industry. And when I think about any cannabis company, I think about how it only will have three possible outcomes. Uh, A company can either become strong enough to survive on its own when the likes of Procter & Gamble and Philip Morris enter this industry. Mm -hmm. A company can get attractive enough to get bought, and there certainly will be a large wave of acquisitions from companies that don't want to build, rather they prefer to buy, Mm -hmm. Uh, or the company is going to go out of business. And that's going to happen to a a larger percentage of this industry than it's likely prepared for. So we are seeing seeing at the basis a lot of M&A activity as companies are starting to come together to strengthen themselves in combination in a different way than they would be apart in the hopes of getting acquired or being able to survive uh, full federal legalization and the competition that that'll eventually bring. Uh, But when we look at companies, we think about all of these factors. We certainly look at them from a diligence lens that has been blessed by the SEC and by FINRA uh, and FinCEN this year. And because of our our broker partner and our legal partner, we run companies through a very extensive level of compliance, regulatory, and legal diligence uh, before we we ever expose them to investment. Got it. And what's the profile of these companies typically? Have they talked to other investors before? Have they tried to raise money from from VCs? Or what's the typical profile that comes to you? Uh, sure. Companies are uh, certainly talking to folks across the what I would describe as the rungs of the capitalization ladder to, to try and find the right partners. Uh, most of this industry has been financed 
through friends and family and angel funding. Yep. Uh, when we go back to even as uh, as far back as March of 20, uh, 2014, 92 company, 92 percent of startups were self-financed, mm -hmm. and by March of twenty sixteen, that number fell to seventy two percent. Over that time frame, there were a lot more companies formed, and a few a lower percentage of them being self-funded. So that was the first initial wave of uh, angel capital that came into this industry. In the past year and a half, we've certainly seen a very uh, marked increase in the sophistication of investors and looking at the space. And when we think about where money is best shepherded, we think about how retail investors are best served putting their money into professionally managed accounts that'll provide them with a, a layer of diligence and a, an outcome of diversification that is likely going to be beneficial to them over time. And when we think about the institutions that are now being run by professional money managers that have come from Wall Street backgrounds, uh, we're very excited to, to see how professional diligence practices are coming into place in this industry and will likely help both elevate the level of and sophistication of funding as well as the ultimate returns to investors. Yeah, so you talked about sort of the institutional side and I want to get there a little bit more. Um, let's talk about sort of the role that family offices play. There's sort of this balance between the high net worth guy and then the institutional and then the family office in the middle. We're in the Big Rock offices right now. Thanks for hosting us, Big Rock. And uh, where do they fit in? I mean, how much are they actually playing? How much money are they really putting into cannabis today? Family offices are looking at cannabis. There are many family offices that have come into cannabis. And when we look at family offices and RIAs, we certainly see a collection of capital that is very useful in its ability to get placed into the industry without a lot of the, uh, what I would describe as professional handcuffs that some of the other institutional players currently have. Mm -hmm. I see, so they're a little less regulated, like less vice clauses maybe, that, that kind of thing. Well, if it's my money I'm putting into, an, into a company, I can do whatever I want with it. The second I start investing your money, I have fiduciary liability and fiduciary responsibility for that capital. And that is where our, you asked me earlier about our investment banking platform, that's where the platform comes into play, is that we're able to provide a fully regulated, fully licensed, and fully diligenced and blessed platform with SEC and FINRA compliance that is attractive to these larger institutional players. But that's not to say that family offices and RIAs are not able to come in. They certainly are, and we certainly work with many of them. And do they have sort of a analysis arm, or how deeply are they looking at these deals, or do they kind of trust you to do a lot of that work? It's a combination. We work with many, uh, we work with many institutional partners that understand our diligence process and are very happy that we have such a stringent diligence process in place. Uh, that's not to say that they don't have their own diligence. They certainly do. But when you have a uh, sort of a laundry list of diligence items that you're working through for someone, uh, it leaves a lot less for them to do. So certainly there's diligence done on both sides. But the more we can do for our clients, the better off they are in terms of what they have to do before they can make decisions. Got it. You were just telling me before we started that you're flying all over the place, speaking in all these locations. I've seen you speak at a couple big conferences, very eloquently, by the way. And uh, talk to me about the value of conferences today and how much you get out of them, both from the investor side and the deal flow side. I mean, it seems to be even more relevant than other industries in some cases. 
conferences are fairly relevant in uh, in many industries and certainly a, a highly relevant in ours. I think when I think about our industry and where it stands today, it reminds me of a classic emerging market. There's a lot of fragmentation. There's a lot of fractionalization. There's a lot of opacity of information and there's a lot of inefficiency. And that uh, that's a very classic emerging market uh, construct and when we go to conferences and when we see a lot of the folks that we meet around those conferences we are meeting with industry leaders both in terms of entrepreneurship as well as in terms of investment and again when because we're in the in the capital flow space it becomes really important to connect face to face with the folks that are placing money into this industry as well as the folks that are raising money in this industry Got it. So when you do make contact with a company that's interested in proceeding, take me through sort of the steps a little bit of you, the process. Like how long does that process take and what's expected of them in that process? You know, how does it work for a company? Sure. So if a company is looking to raise capital and they come to us and we decide that we want to work with them as well, the, uh, the process, the diligence process is fairly dependent on how prepared the company is for that diligence. We have a list of, of requirements that, again, are, are SEC and FINRA compliant that the company has to satisfy. Uh, so the company's preparation largely determines the speed at which we can go. Uh, we don't take on a lot of banking clients simultaneously. We want to have a very curated experience for our, our, our clients. And uh, so, I know well, the direct answer to your question is diligence can take anywhere from a month to three months. Okay. And then typically to raise that round, how long does that take? It's anyone's guess as far as how long it takes to raise capital. There are companies that struggle to raise money in this industry and others that don't. Mm -hmm. Our focus is to find those companies that are best in class, that are protected, that have the best chances of either surviving or getting purchased. And what we have found is that because of our institutional partners and the quality of our deal flow, we haven't had uh, lags or delays in our fundraising. At the same time, it uh, again is anyone's guess as to when someone's ready to write a check that's not going to bounce. Understood. Um, one of the conferences, and, and you're very early, and I know you work closely with ArcView, as sort of the industry progresses, how do you view ArcView and other angel groups like this are they more or less necessary than ever? Well, ArcView and other angel groups have done an incredible service to this industry by bringing angels into an industry that, that needed that funding, that did not have access to the family offices and RIAs and the private equity funds that we see today. And this was back, you know, ArcView was formed in 2011. And if you think about where the industry was between 2011 and even as recently as 2016, it looked extremely different than it does today. Uh, so there's certainly a very large positive impact that angel groups in aggregate, and ArcView in particular, have had on the industry. As the industry progresses and matures, uh, it is certainly likely that angel groups, business plans, and business structures will also mature with the industry. And while there's a lot of relevance for angel groups to exist for placement of capital on a collective basis in the industry, uh, there's also a large amount of institutional capital now coming into the industry, and that has to be catered to as well, and perhaps in a slightly different way than angel groups uh, do. 
about incubators. I think that there was this early thesis that like, oh, technology had this early stage incubator thing. That must work in cannabis, right? And I think we've had sort of mixed results there. Canopy certainly has done some great work. Gateway had some good companies. They've disbanded now. But how closely do you pay attention to the incubators? I mean, is that like, you're like, oh, when's the next class coming? Is that relevant for you? It used to be, and it's uh, become a little less relevant given our business today, but certainly used to be. And I think they've, uh, again, just like we discussed around ArcView, the incubators and the incubation space itself has done a tremendous service to the industry. Uh, if you think about the works and the BDSs and the front-range biosciences that have come out of a, a, an example you used, which was Canopy, uh, we, uh, if you ask my personal view on incubation, I'll give you a view both on incubation as well as co-working. I think, and as you mentioned, we're sitting at Big Rock's offices. Uh, this is a space that is working to promote multiple cannabis companies working, coming together and working together in a business ecosystem format. And I find that when you have either an innovative idea for a product or one for a service, that's wonderful, but it takes a village to put it into place and put it into a business practice and make it a successful business. And when you can have access to consultants and attorneys and intellectual property folks and financiers all in one space, there's a large amount of benefit that comes not just from having shared space with fellow entrepreneurs, but also having anchor tenants in an incubation or co-working type environment that can provide the professional services that your company is likely going to benefit from tremendously over time. Yeah, I think it just can really expedite the process a lot. When, when you go somewhere every day where all those resources are available to you, just, things just move quickly, I think. Start, try starting a company on a countryside and do the same thing in a downtown area of a city. But engineers are cheaper, I guess, <laughs> in the countryside. Um, so one of the reasons I think that the focus has sort of been taken off incubators and early stage U.S. companies is there's so much happening in Canada. And I think the U.S. investor now has access to that. And so putting in money in an early stage risky deal seems less appealing there. Um, kind of what are your thoughts generally on Canada? Is there a bubble happening? What's 10 years from now look like for those investors in Canada? Thank you. That's three questions. I'll try to answer all of them. Uh, what's happening in Canada? Is there a bubble and what does it look like in 10 years? Well, what's happening in Canada is that Canada uh, on October 17th this month will have opened up its markets as the first G7 country in the world to legalize cannabis for adult use. That has tremendous implications as the other six countries that comprise the G7 collectively control 65% of global wealth. So when we think about this market opening up and we think about how we're now sandwiched between a fully legal market as of October 17th and a medical market down in Mexico, uh, and also how the Western corridor of the US is now fully legal, it has tremendous implications both from a impact of legalization observation perspective, as well as from a trade perspective. If we think about what we've been seeing in the news lately on NAFTA and how cannabis may very well become a globally traded agricultural commodity over time. Uh, the second question was around whether or not Canada is in a bubble. And what I can share is that while valuations in the short run are certainly dictated by supply and demand, in the long run, the lack of intrinsic value of a business makes any valuation not based on it patently absurd. Uh, another way of saying this is that while Canada is 
extremely advanced in production, cultivation, and potentially, potentially even export. When I think about the history of the world, I can't think of a single plant that has been grown in Canada, with the potential exception of maple trees, which Vermonters may also have an issue with. So when I think about how this plant has grown outdoors for thousands of years and how we brought it indoors in recent decades, I also think about labeling and transparency laws, and I think about whether terroir and appellation are going to be something that consumers are going to want to know. I want to know whether my cannabis is grown in, on a, on a, in a valley in Mendocino or in a warehouse in Oakland. And when I can get that transparency, I'm going to vote with my dollars. That may very well shift the industry from a 90-10 ratio of indoor to outdoor towards something that's more balanced or even more skewed towards something that the plant has used for thousands of years. It's called sunlight. And when we think about production around the equator with 12 hours of sunlight, nearly free labor, we think about a cost structure that's going to be very difficult to compete with in large warehouses up north. So 10 years from now, I don't know what the world looks like. I don't think anyone does. But if I were to take a guess, I would think that we would be marching much closer to global trade. We would be marching much closer to sourcing plants. Ultimately, all this fuss, uh, and, and it's a really good fuss, is over a vegetable. And all vegetables, or most vegetables, are sourced where they're best grown. And I don't, uh, I don't see a construct over time under which cannabis is any different. It's going to be grown along the equator, basically. Uh, and if you look at what some of the early Canadian vets are doing in Colombia, for example, they would tend to agree. How does that play out? I mean, th there's talks of the international cannabis trade and a little bit between Canada and Germany, but it doesn't feel like we're really there yet, right? It's in small amounts. Like, how long does that progression take? You know, what do you expect to see there? Well, there's 77 million wealthy Germans that are coming online, and that's a wonderful thing. The markets in Spain have opened up quite a bit. While it's not legal, it's certainly tolerated. And Spain today has 800 cannabis clubs versus um, the Netherlands, which has a fraction of what it did 10 years ago. So the market in Amsterdam has been cut in half in the last 10 years. The market in Spain has grown tremendously. We are seeing some moves. And if I could think about potentially why there's somewhat of a dislocation outside of political forces, it also has to do with weather, and cannabis grows better in Spain than it does up in Germany. So some of the northern countries are going to import cannabis, and if to the extent they import cannabis from Canada, that's a wonderful thing for some of these companies. Canada, keep in mind, also has over 115 licensed producers, and the Canadian government has given out these licenses uh, at a fairly rapid clip over the past year and change. So it's, uh, it remains to be seen who's going to, to thrive in the new global environment. But certainly at the moment, there's a lot of benefit to being a public company in Canada from a, from a capitalization standpoint. And if the recent stock moves we have seen both in Canada as well as a few companies that are traded publicly in the U.S. are any example, then there's no, there, there's, there ought to be very little debate around the mania and the interest that capital has in being deployed into the space. One of the things that I spend a fair amount of time thinking about is what are the kind of companies that these big Canadian public companies are going to acquire? 
Um, and are they technologies? Are they brands? We've seen a little bit of that already. Kind of how do you think this comes together? You, you do some M&A work. Like, how do you, what do you think these big Canadian companies are going to buy and when, I suppose? What, what sectors? Well, I think about the tech sector when I hear that question, and I think about how technology was born out of the industrial age, and we're now in the information age as a result. But I also think about how technology was an industry, and in the late 90s, I covered, uh, I covered the tech space for a mutual fund, uh, and saw how technology was treated as an industry, and how now it is an indelible part of every industry. And when I think about cannabis, I think about it in a similar way. Cannabis is a movement and an industry, and over time it's going to be a part of every industry because of its unique ability to impact all of our human conditions and disease states. So when I think about big ag, big food, big pharma, big liquor, big tobacco, big hospitality, big entertainment, big medicine, the, the, the list goes on, I can't think of a single industry that will not be impacted by cannabis including hemp. And therefore, when I hear the question about where consolidation is and who's gonna buy who, you tell me what's gonna happen when restaurants go from offering just wine flights to also cannabis flights and theaters go from offering surround sound to THC sound. Mm -hmm. And we have tinctures on every store shelf in this country. Wait, that was 1935, we haven't had those since. But back in 1935, we had tinctures on every dispensary shelf or pharmacy shelf in the country. And while the pharmacies were named differently than they are today, the manufacturers were similar to names that we all know. They were Abbott Labs, they were Merck, they were Eli Lilly. And when I think about an environment that allows for ubiquitous consumption of this plant, I can't think of companies that would not participate directly or indirectly with the space. And we're seeing that surprisingly quickly with Coca-Cola and Constellation and all these big brands that I don't think, maybe you did, but I think most people didn't expect to see this soon talking about cannabis. Well, the, uh, the two companies that were most relevant to me in the press release of Constellation investing into Canopy were neither one of them. They were Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And when those two behemoths are willing to put their names on this space, mm -hmm. There's no debate that as soon as the feds blow the whistle, they will all be at our doors. As you see the industry sort of develop, are there parts that you wish people were building more? What do you want to see built in the world that's maybe not being worked on so much? Yet? Yeah, two questions, one about the industry, one about the world. Certainly in the industry, we'd like to see, uh, and I, I suspect we will, a progression from where we are. And I can think about how we are currently isolating and promoting certain molecules out of this plant, molecules including THC and CBD, of course, uh, while ignoring the potential full-spectrum benefit of having whole plant medicine in combination with other minerals, vitamins, and supplements that can help the human condition in a much more efficacious manner. So I do expect that as we progress and mature in this industry, we will start using cannabinoids as platforms, not as destinations. Uh, on the edible side of things, I don't, uh, I don't expect that we will continue to all consume gummy bears and brownies just because they have cannabis in them. And uh, that over time, we will also progress towards the whole food bars and kombuchas and things that include other herbs and other roots that are beneficial. 
uh, for adult consumption. Certainly with the, the vape pens we have today, most of them are, are kind of dumb. They don't talk to my phone. Then My phone knows how many steps I've taken, not how many hits I've taken. Nor does it know the impact that that has had on my, my current state of health. And all of that data, as we have 2018 technology meet 10,000-year-old plant, has tremendous implications for our ability to not just provide medicine that's appropriate for you, but medicine that's appropriate for your current state and for your desired intention or outcome. And when we can have truly personalized medicine, we will have begun to scratch the surface of what is truly the potential that this plant provides us. Uh, the second part of your question was what I'd like to see in the world. And I think we're starting to see that. And I'm very excited, very optimistic about what we're seeing in the world uh, because I think that if one can look at cannabis as the fourth leg of the regulatory stool, then one can see the direction in which that leg can take us in, uh, in stabilizing what we have. So when I think about what the other three legs are, I think about caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol. And all three have been extremely well entrenched into our social consciousness through the use and the, the socially acceptable coffee break, smoke break, and happy hour. And when I think about what cannabis does when it comes into this mix, it reduces alcohol consumption, it reduces opioid consumption, it can certainly play a role in coffee, it can certainly be smoked, and it can certainly be infused into alcoholic beverages. So cannabis has this unique ability to impact our coffee breaks, smoke breaks, and happy hours, while also removing a lot of what is causing workplace absenteeism, domestic violence, prison populations, and a host of other medical and societal issues that alcohol and opioid consumption have, have certainly led to in this country. Uh, the other thing I think about is as we promote the more ubiquitous use of cannabis, we take it from what was and has been somewhat of a solo consumption to a more group-based consumption. And certainly as we introduce cannabis into more collective consumption, we're not just utilizing this plant for its solo benefits of creativity and contemplation, but perhaps also for its group benefits of community and compassion and compatibility. And that impact on our collective consciences is something that I'm very happy to, to be moving towards and I'm very excited and optimistic about what kinds of decisions we would make as our collective consciences are more impacted by cannabis and less impacted by, by real drugs and by alcohol. Yeah, no, very well said. And how about you? How has your relationship changed sort of through this process with cannabis? Well, I spent 20 years on Wall Street and Wall Street is, uh, is a wonderful place if you like alcohol. Mm. There's uh, no shortage of it. And uh, certainly I was exposed to a lot of that during my, my two decades uh, on Wall Street. My relationship has certainly changed. I've uh, embraced cannabis in, in a very different way than I had before. And I've understood its uses from a medicinal standpoint. Uh, in addition to its uses from a, from a sort of relaxation or, or um, intoxication standpoint. And I think that as the market moves from looking at it as an intoxicating substance to understanding its wellness attributes, that there is a very pleasant effect, not just on our people, but also on our plants and our planet and ultimately our profits when one is able to utilize cannabis in all of the wonderful ways that it, uh, it offers help to us. Mm. And what do you gravitate towards? Edibles, flowers, concentrates? What, what, what works for you? 
I like to smoke flour. Mm-hmm. I like uh, edibles as well. Those are the, the two that uh, I would gravitate towards. Got it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on. It's been a really interesting interview from someone that knows the industry the best. Um, this is your chance. Plug whatever you would like. Uh, investors or companies or what are you looking for? Are you hiring anything? How can we help? Sure. Uh, the, the plug I'll give uh, folks is that if you're looking at this industry and you want to start a business, please do so. It is a wonderful place to, to show innovation. Uh, if you're looking at this industry from an investment perspective, absolutely, there are lots of wonderful ways to deploy capital. And if you're looking at this industry from both perspectives, that is the, that is the best combination. So while we value your money and we value your effort, if you combine the two, there's a lot of space for growth in this industry. Uh, when you have an industry that's growing at 27%, it doubles in size every 32 months. And given that we're currently in the fastest growing industry in the world, there is a lot of opportunity for folks and a lot of wonderful opportunity to create businesses with the right ethos, with the right morals, with the right values. And for anyone that is looking at this industry, I would, uh, I would encourage you to, to take a close look, act on what you find. And whether you're just placing capital or whether you're also placing effort and time, uh, we welcome it all. We welcome the brain power and we welcome the passion. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that this industry wouldn't survive without organizations that work every day to make sure that uh, we are moving towards the future where we're not putting each other in cages for having relationships with a plant. Mm-hmm. And uh, those organizations are extremely important to support because they create the environment in which businesses like mine can thrive. Well said. And thanks again. Thanks for having us. Sumit of Mazakali. Thanks so much. Thanks very much.